0: This is May It Please the Internet, a podcast brought to you by Revision Legal, lawyers who represent businesses that make money online. Hey everyone, this is John DiGiacomo and you are listening to May It Please the Internet, Revision Legal's podcast on all things for businesses that make money online. And I am joined today by my partner, Eric Mastarevich. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great, John. How are you? Pretty good. And I'm excited to talk today about protecting your content site and five ways in particular that you can protect your content site. And when we talk about a content site, Eric, what do we mean?
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's a type of online business. And recently, I think we've seen a bit more interest in People buying and selling these kinds of sites as opposed to an Amazon FBA business and content site is, well, it's what it sounds like, right? It's a website that has a very niche topic, produces rich kind of expert content and a specific area and goes really deep. I mean, I think the, the most common example of this is like a review site. If you're researching, you know, best TV to buy or speakers or snowblowers, you're going to land on a review site that breaks down all the newest models, their features, their pros, their cons. And usually these websites are creating revenue in two ways. One through affiliate links about the products they're reviewing and the other with advertising. So, you know, a lot of people tend to like these businesses because they're rather passive in terms of this content can last if it's more evergreen kind of content and there's no inventory. So you don't have to deal with manufacturers overseas suppliers and forecasting inventory or anything like that.
0: Yeah. These are great businesses when you are starting online, particularly because you don't have to manage inventory. It's just really nice to build a site out and to build an audience and trust in that audience. And then, eventually, when you start to find products that you like, and you want to sell products yourselves, you can do that. We had a client recently who has created a site in the pool industry, and he's been talking about cleaning your pools forever. And he's just really good at it and makes awesome content. And then eventually decided, you know what, I've been sending links to third parties for a long time and to start to make my own stuff. And so it's a great type of site on its own. It's also a great starting site to allow you to move into physical products as well. I have used one recently. I was going to buy an air purifier. And so I looked at a content site and looked at various reviews for air purifiers. And they're useful resources. So let's talk about the ways that you can protect these.
1: Yeah, I think these types of businesses have specific concerns that really do need to be addressed. And they're going to be addressed one time or another. You're either going to find a problem and get into trouble for it, or you're going to be selling your business and these problems are going to be exposed. So the point of this podcast is to kind of get people ahead of the game, know the common areas where people can make mistakes and get out ahead of those. And I think the first topic is one we've talked about before. You know, we've kind of explained this is probably the most bang for your buck in any kind of online business. and that is getting proper employment agreements and independent contractor agreements in place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the easiest thing that you can possibly do, and it's the thing that no one does. It's really unfortunate. Again, we've said this multiple times on many podcasts, but we're going to rehash the same thing again here. The reason you should do this is because under copyright law, rights vest, meaning rights are created in the individual who creates the work that is copyrightable. So in the case of an independent contractor that you hire to design the website, to build out the, the graphical user interface, to take photos, you know, to do any of those traditional design items, those copyright rights vest in that independent contractor. So unless you have a written agreement between you and the independent contractor that assigns those rights over to you, You do not own them. And this can become a huge problem when you go to sell a content site, because the first thing that a buyer's attorney is going to want to see is that all of those independent contractor agreements have been signed and that they are, all the ducks are in a row and all the content is accounted for.
1: Yeah. And I think the most important one is the content. You know, most content site owners, Dave, you might start out on your own. As you grow, you're probably going to be outsourcing writing. And if you don't have those agreements in place, you don't own any of that content. And people are always shocked when they come to that realization. And, you know, you can see a gear in the headlights look like, oh, shit, I don't own anything that is on the site for the last five years. Usually, if we run into a situation like that, we can come up with some solutions to still help that business get sold. But it's so much better just to get out ahead of this, And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to fix. It's a one page independent contractor agreement that has these magic words, this work for hire provision, where if you have this language and it makes clear that this is a quote work for hire and that the copyright rights vest not with the author, with the independent contractor, but with the company paying that person. And it's as simple as that. You know, we usually give these things away to people when I have people calling and, Hey, I'm thinking about selling my content site. I immediately start asking these questions. They never have these agreements in place. And I usually just give them a copy of a template because it's so easy to do. The harder thing to do is track down all your old contractors and get them to sign assignments for past work and then a work for hire provision for future work. That's usually the hardest part about this is tracking everyone down.
0: Yeah. And when you have to track them down, it's awkward because a lot of times they ask why and then you have to explain to them, well, I'm selling the business and I really need to clean this up. And then, of course, the next question or the next ask is, well, what's in it for me? You're selling the business. You're going to get cash out of this. Why can't I get some cash out of it if I own these rights? So getting this stuff done on the front end instead of waiting until you sell the site or the business is really key. And for actual employees, it's also important to have an employment agreement because the employment agreement will contain express provisions granting that IP to the business. Even though the law says that an employee that is working within the scope of their employment, the rights of the employee vest in the employer, it is helpful to have a written employment agreement because... It isn't always clear what the scope of the employment is or whether certain items are the employee's tools such that when they are using those tools, the work is the employer's versus theirs. So getting those things in writing are really important. But in general, the standard is if the person is an employee, then the rights vest in the employer.
1: I think it raises a question that a lot of people are probably asking are, what's the difference between an employee and an independent contractor? I mean, I think most people just think their label controls it. Like, hey, I have these contractors. Maybe I even have an independent contractor agreement. Unfortunately, that's not really the way it works. The, The test between whether or not someone's an employee or a contractor is notoriously fuzzy. It's, I don't know, what, nine or 10 different factors kind of get weighed in about, is the person kind of free to work on their own schedule? Do they bring their own tools to the job? Are they working for other people? Can they turn down work? All these kinds of things get weighed in determining a question of law as to whether or not it's an employee or independent contractor. You don't get to make that determination.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. It is not as clear as you think it is. It is not simply that you're paying them hourly. If you control the hours of work, if you set times that they're going to work, there is certainly a risk there. they an independent contractor. So you should have somebody take a look at this as well. Eric, let's talk about the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Now, the DMCA is this statute that's been around since I think 1996 that basically states that a service provider or a third-party platform like a content site has immunity from a copyright infringement lawsuit as a direct infringer if they expeditiously remove content when it's notified as being infringing and maintain a registered agent with the copyright office. Now, this is just a fancy way of saying you can't be sued as a direct copyright infringer for things that other people upload to your site as long as you take it down when you get notified of it, and you register an agent with the Copyright Office. So Eric, what's this process like?
1: Why we're bringing this up is, I think there's an underlooked part of this process to get this huge benefit of federal immunity from copyright lawsuits that is probably the easiest part of the whole process, and I think a lot of people don't know about it. So you explained this kind of notice and takedown process, and I think most people that are familiar with the DMCA have a general understanding Okay, yeah, there's a notice and takedown. We've probably used third party sites that have templates that we have to fill out that make you answer the statutory required elements to submit a DMCA. But that second part, the registered agent, that's the part that you you said last and is equally as important. It's a process of filing an online form with the U.S. Copyright Office. You Put down a person's name and contact information and they become your registered agent other people then can search this database of registered agents and find the registered agent for your business it's similar to a registered agent for your llc or your corporation the cost for this is six dollars which is i don't know anything that costs six dollars anymore but this $6 filing fee is one part of gaining immunity for copyright infringement actions for yeah, third-party content. It's, it's something that people forget about, don't know it exists, and it's extremely important.
0: Absolutely. It's something that we've gotten infringers on as well, where they have said, you can't come after me. I'm a third-party content site. I comply with the DMCA. And whether you comply with the DMCA is always an open question because... You can take down one thing and not take down 10 and be considered a willful infringer because of repeat infringement or having actual knowledge. But it's really clear when you don't register an agent with the U.S. Copyright Office. And the statute is very clear that you do not get that immunity unless you register. So this is cheap and easy. You should do it. Let's talk about fair use and proper use of trademarks. Eric, how can content site owners protect themselves from trademark claims and make sure that they're making fair use of trademarks and photographs?
1: Yeah, this is a question we get a lot where, you know, if you have a content site, you're talking about other people's products. You know, you're talking about trucks or cars or speakers or TVs. You have to refer to all of those products by their name and by their brand. So there's no way to talk about a Ford Lightning without calling it a Ford Lightning. well, Those are trademarks that belong to the Ford Motor Company. And then people get concerned of, well, am I engaging in trademark infringement now by using those words on my site or their logos and things like that? And the general answer here is probably not. You probably are making fair use or nominative use of these trademarks, which essentially boils down to You're using it to describe the product you're talking about. There's no other way to refer to that product other than by using its trademarked name. And the law allows that. That's fair. What you can't do, though, is try to make it seem like Ford sponsors your website or approves your website or has really anything to do with your website. You don't want to try to force or imply some kind of connection between you and the trademark holder. Most of the time, this isn't that hard to avoid. If you're doing this, you're, you're probably going a step too far. I don't think this is something you really do by accident, but if you want to be safe here and try to protect yourself, you can always use disclaimers and say, we don't own these rights, this company is not sponsored, is not affiliated with our website. And those disclaimers are effective and they're useful. And so using the trademark name, usually an easier call, the copyright issue here and using pictures of these products, a little trickier. John, why don't you, I'll give you the tricky one.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Fair use under copyright law is really hard. And in other countries, the UK, for example, There are specifically enumerated categories of things that constitute fair use. So newspaper reporting or things of that sort in the U S because we value free speech, we don't create hard and fast rules for what constitutes fair use. We have a four factor test and the four factor test is really difficult to apply. The factors are the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion taken and the effect of the use on the potential market. Now, all of this means some, some very simple concepts. The purpose and character of the use goes to, are you making a commercial use of this content or are you using it for a non-commercial purpose? It isn't enough that you say you're using it for a non-commercial purpose. It has to be strictly non-commercial in an educational setting, for example. The nature of the copyrighted work looks at how close to the core values of copyright is this work? Is this highly creative or is this a product shot? If you are using a product shot, it's going to be considered less creative and therefore the weight of the nature of the copyrighted work is going to weigh more in your favor if you're claiming fair use. The amount and substantiality of the portion taken, that's just how much of this image or whatever it is that you are using has been used and then the, the most important factor is the effect of the use upon the potential market which means that if this is displacing a use that the copyright owner would otherwise get paid for it's likely to not be considered fair use within these factors there is this general idea of transformative use or transformation and the more transformative a use the more likely it is fair use, meaning that if you're creating something new out of what you're using and it's really transformative of that underlying work, then it's going to be more likely to be considered fair use. This is a really complex area of law, as you can tell. It's very difficult to explain. It's also very difficult and very expensive to apply. So what ends up happening is if you are a content site, typically what you'll want to do is either license images or other works from places like Getty Images or Shutterstock or something along those lines, or alternatively, find royalty-free content, whether through Creative Commons or another website of that sort. There are many out there. Unsplash is one of them, which I particularly like. And you will make sure that you have clear rights by using those sites. The problem with the fair use test is that At the end of the day, because it's so risky to rely on fair use as a defense and because it is so costly to hire an attorney to run the fair use analysis for you, it creates this problem where the world of fair use gets whittled away because no one claims fair use. There's no case law that really analyzes fair use in depth. There's no clear and hard cases So if you really need to make a fair use, you should talk to an attorney and make sure you get an assessment. But for most people, you're probably going to default to getting licensed content instead.
1: First of all, I want to give you props there. I mean, we do prepare for this. We do have an outline. None of what he just said was on that outline. So knowing every single factor of fair use and being able to describe it. Off the top of your head, it is impressive. I want to give you some props on that. (laughs) Everyone kind of talks, this is fair use. I'm barely using it. I'm only using five seconds of this song. That's fair use. No one understands how fair use works. What John said is completely true. And the short answer is, it's too expensive for you to prove you're right. Even if you think you're right. It's an affirmative defense, which means you have to be sued, assert the defense, and then win later in the lawsuit. So you are stuck to using images, hopefully, that are licensed. Now, sometimes people can find media kits from bigger companies, may have images that are available for use. Even those can be tricky because there might be certain license conditions on the use. So using photos that you don't have the clear rights to is a problem. This is a situation where you should have standard operating procedures of how you or your contractors or assistants are sourcing photos and knowing exactly where they came from. Again, if you don't address this now and you end up trying to sell this business, you will be asked these questions. And if you can't answer them, you have a lower chance to sell your business or you're going to sell it for less money. So this is one, get out ahead of the game, get your shit in order, understand where your photos are coming from and make sure you have the rights to them.
0: Yeah. If you've listened to any of the other podcasts that we've done, you know that we do a lot of M&A work in this space, lots of mergers and acquisitions. And after a sale, the two most likely claims for indemnification from our experience are one, you're not getting paid. So you need to sue because you're not getting paid for some holdback amount of the purchase price or two, some copyright troll sued you as the buyer for an image that was on the site prior to you purchasing it. And the indemnification clause is then triggered in the asset purchase agreement. And you have to go back to the seller and ask them to pay for the defense of that copyright infringement suit or whatever it might be. So th- again, this is really important stuff to get clear. Big clients, big companies have teams and processes and procedures internally for clearing these types of works. It's really good practice for you to do that right from the beginning, even on a small content site, so that when the time comes, you can explain to your buyer what you've done and how you've protected against these types of claims.
1: Yeah, and as a buyer, let's talk about from a buyer's perspective, because buyers are dealing with sellers that don't have the stuff in order. So then the question is, do I proceed or how do I mitigate my risk? You know, one is making the seller stay on the hook for any kind of IP infringement, maybe holding back money for a certain period of time to use for indemnification purposes. The other is to really force the seller to clearly identify what content does not have the rights. So you can make a decision of, all right, there's 30 pictures or there's 50 posts or whatever, and you can just delete those items, right? You can just not use them going forward, which of course is going to reduce your risk. So if you're a buyer and you're dealing with these kinds of sellers, it's not the end of the road. It's not like this deal has to die. There's ways to Mitigate the risk for the buyer, protect the buyer moving forward, shift more risk onto the seller. It's not the end of the world, but things are going to change. And usually these things happen, you know, late in the APA negotiation process. A lot of times this stuff doesn't come up during due diligence. If an attorney is not involved in due diligence, then it doesn't come up. We find out later and it's a real kind of shuffling of cards at the last minute.
0: Yeah, and interesting last point on this AI generated images. So this is the new hotness in the space. The US Copyright Office came down today and said that you cannot copyright AI generated images. It'll be interesting to see how this plays into this analysis of, you know, where do you get content from? Because maybe it's that AI generated images are actually a legitimate source to get content from because there's no creator and they're therefore not subject to copyright. But as this area of law develops, we'll talk more about it, but it's a really interesting area of law that I thought we should just uh, add an asterisk to this conversation about.
1: I was thinking about that as well as you were talking, and I can see that becoming a part of APAs and a part of disclosures of what content is, it will have to be carved out in that you don't have the rights to that. No one really does, I guess, is the answer. But yeah, I could see APA's really changing to include those kinds of disclosures.
0: Yeah, it should be an interesting time for copyright attorneys and attorneys in the internet law space because there's some scraping issues there as well that we'll probably address in a in a future podcast episode. But for the meantime, let's move on to FDA disclaimers for affiliate links and other related content sites. FDA disclaimers. Let me preface this by saying, whenever you're dealing with personal sensitive information or health information, start looking at your business more closely from a legal perspective. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is that the FTC and the FDA really enforce health claims and you know claims about the treatment of diseases. And there's also new areas of law emerging related to the capturing of biometric information that relate to privacy that really draw a lot of scrutiny in this area. So it's really important to make sure that you understand how the FDA's act or the FTC's false advertising act, part five applies to your content site. And Eric, what do you think is important for people to know for the purposes of this podcast?
1: So for the FTC part, the affiliate links, you have to disclose their affiliate and that you're getting paid and. I think people are getting more comfortable with this. I feel like this is more widely known than it was maybe five years ago, probably because everyone sees it and interacts with it more. But I think people do have to understand this isn't a best practice. This isn't a good idea. This is the law. You have to do this. Not only do you have to do it, you have to do a good job of disclosing these affiliate links and these disclosures. You have to. Use one understandable language. You have to explain exactly what's going on. I am entitled to a portion of proceeds from the sale of this product. If you use this link, you have to use that kind of disclosure in a place people see it. It has to be close to the content that is kind of triggering people to click on that link. You can't stick this disclosure in the back or in the end of your terms of use. And you should really be making this disclosure multiple times. To just do it once probably isn't enough. This should be present throughout your website. The whole point here is that the government is taking action to make sure the public is aware of what they are reading. And what they are reading is a paid commercial. It is not someone's just genuine opinion. Maybe it also is. But there's money at stake and, you know, I think these kinds of disclaimers are really important. I almost wish there was more of this kind of stuff because just the ability for people to be duped online just seems to be growing exponentially. But these types of disclosures are mandatory. You have to use them. I understand they may not look pretty and they may interfere with your copy. You have to do them. And if you don't, you're not only putting yourself at risk now you're also hurting the ability to sell your business later.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to just kind of clarify. There's FDA regulations that apply to drug treatment. So FDA regulations would apply to things like laser devices that stimulate hair growth or supplements, potentially. If you are selling supplements online, you're falling within an exception to the Food and Drug Act. So you need to make sure that your disclosure language is correct and that your Copy is not selling a treatment for a cure or disease and that it uses correct disclaimer language There is part five or excuse me section five of the ftc act which prohibits false and deceptive advertising If you look at that section, there's a number of things that you're gonna have to comply with You should probably talk to an attorney about that And then there's part 255 Which is eric the part that you were just talking about which covers endorsements and testimonials and advertising And so it has very strict disclosure requirements, as Eric said, and there's a really great guide, you know, great in the world of government stuff, right? It's not not perfect, but it's pretty good for a government agency that is produced by the FTC that provides examples of when and how you should disclose material relationships between you and the product or the party that you're advertising. So it is worth looking at that. I would not recommend doing this yourself. I would recommend getting an attorney for this if you believe that you're going to be subject to this area of regulation. But at the very least, it'll give you the context that you need to form the questions that you should be asking your attorney if you have a content site of this sort.
1: Agreed. All all that people can forget how important this stuff is, especially the health claims. If, If you're selling any kind of product or any kind of content site related to health claims, having an attorney review what you've done and what you've said isn't an option. I think it's mandatory.
0: And also, again, one of the reasons this is mandatory is you're not just subject to federal level regulations, which are rarely enforced. And when they are, they're enforced very hard. You're also subject to state level regulations by state's attorneys general. And if you're selling across multiple state lines, You're going to need somebody to look at this with an eye and a knowledge of what the landscape is for state regulation for these types of products. So definitely, this is an area, if you are selling a drug product or you're selling a a supplement or you are making health claims or even like ancillary statements that could be in any world considered a health claim, talk to an attorney immediately. Absolutely.
1: Well, our final topic here, our final of the five points to help content sites, the most exciting by far. Terms of use, right? The terms of use privacy policy that no one wants to spend money on, no one wants to invest in the news is they're important. They are important. And it's one of these things where you invest into it, it's done. Yeah, they are living documents and they may need to be amended throughout time, but you should be confident that you have these things in place. They say what they're supposed to say and it's done. Now, when we get to what are they supposed to say it depends depends on what kind of content you're writing about there's going to be disclaimers if you're involved in giving investment advice or health advice or if you're recommending what you know sneakers to buy there's going to be different types of things that you should say uh, but the main thing I always tell people is this is your time to kind of make the rules and it should be accurate to how your website operates and then it should be designed to protect you as much as possible including any possible limitations on liability, setting an appropriate venue if anyone ever wanted to sue you or they have to do it where you are. And my experience with this is the terms of use can really help kind of unpredictable issues that come up and you can use those to fall back on. And if you don't have them in place, you're missing this kind of foundational support or underlying baseline of how your online business operates and the rules that it abides by.
0: Yeah, I agree entirely. And I want to give a few examples that I've recently had to deal with this morning. I had to draft a privacy policy for, which by the way, I'm what my 15th year of drafting privacy policies. I This is like second nature to me at this point, but everything changes every year. It, it's always a new experience. And this particular client sells a device that has some GPS tracking capabilities and had no privacy policy and no terms of use agreement. So of course, they are a huge target for litigation because they are not disclosing and not gaining consent for this tracking process. There are other areas, particularly recently, where really enterprising attorneys have been suing website owners, particularly in content and e-commerce spaces, for violations of wiretapping law and violations of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. The wiretapping law is a law out of California that says that if you use a chat bot, a chat box on your website that simultaneously records the conversation, or allows for eavesdropping on the conversation by a third party during the chat that you can be held liable for statutory damages in California. So if you have a chat bot or a chat box on your site where you're providing information in real time about the things that are discussed on your website, or if you have an e-commerce site about the products that you're selling, then you are definitely at risk in the absence of a privacy policy and a terms of use agreement of being sued for a violation of the Wiretapping Act. Same is true for the Biometric Information Privacy Act. This is an Illinois statute that is very restrictive. It says that if you collect any biometric information from a resident of Illinois, you must have written confirmation prior to collecting that information. So a great example of a a modern case, if you are doing sunglass try-ons virtually because you sell sunglasses and you've got a webcam component where it overlays an augmented reality sunglasses on your face, you're collecting biometric information and you have to comply while these lawyers are suing. Again, if you have a proper privacy policy in terms of use agreement in place, these lawsuits are dead in the water because you've disclosed in a conspicuous way. You're collecting this information you have set jurisdiction where you are and not where they are where their laws are more favorable to the plaintiff's attorneys all of these things are helpful to protect against lawsuits and then also going back to the sale of the business if you don't have these things in place it's going to be an open question as to whether or not you have the right to transfer data that you've collected to a buyer in a sale of a content site because you didn't have the right privacy policy in place, so very important stuff to get done.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about those specific examples, and I, I read the response letters that you drafted, and and I saw that heavy reliance on the terms of use in the privacy policy, and and that certainly clicked when I was we were coming out with the outline for this. Like, yeah, that's a perfect example of how you know it's relevant relatively, I won't say boilerplate, but it's not like shocking language that's within the privacy policy. You wouldn't read it and say, oh my God, like that's a brand new provision. I think it's something that a privacy policy would include a lot of times. It just so happens to also apply now to these, like you said, enterprising attorneys and and their claims. And of course you can draft it to be much more specific to combat those now, but even a privacy policy from a few years ago may have language that would encompass a defense there. But if you just didn't have anything, then you don't have anything and you can really be behind the eight ball.
0: Yeah. And I think there's one other thing that we should talk about here, which is enforceability of these agreements. So there's a lot of case law and there was a case that just came down in the ninth circuit involving the wiretapping act. And I'm not saying the correct name. So if you're in California, forgive me. I cannot recall the proper name for that, but it's, it's the Wiretapping Act in my brain. There is a case that came down that talked about the enforceability of these agreements and it isn't enough to put them in the footer of your website. So you really have to get user assent to them. So when you work with an attorney and you have them draft a terms of use agreement and a privacy policy in this manner, they're going to advise you on ways that you can get these agreements to stick because... These defenses are great, but if they don't stick because no one's agreed to them or a court doesn't agree that they've agreed, that your users agreed to them, then you've got a real problem. So it's really important to make sure the whole thing is getting taken care of. And it's really not that expensive. I would not use a form service for this. It's a terrible idea. There's a reason why Walmart doesn't use a form service of $14 for a privacy policy. There's just too much involved in this process. So talk to an attorney about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you say, "Hey, they're not that expensive," you know, sometimes legal and fees and stuff are not always the most transparent. I mean, I think if you hire an attorney to take a real look at your website to really identify risks and draft a privacy policy, terms of use, you're probably going to be looking at somewhere between two and four thousand dollars to have a full, complete set of terms, advice on enforceability and how those are implemented and getting users to agree to it. Sometimes it may be a little bit less, sometimes maybe a little bit more, depends on what's going on, but that's the range I think that's pretty reasonable to expect.
0: Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. I agree. Well, Eric, I think that's all we have for today. I appreciate it. Do you have anything else you want to add?
1: That's all for today. Glad to be back. Glad to get another pod recorded.
0: Yeah, I will be gone. So you won't hear from me for a while. But maybe we can get some guests in here to chat with Eric while I'm gone. But we really appreciate listening. We're happy to continue to provide you with this content in the new year. If there's anything that you want to see from us, let us know. We're always open to ideas. If you want to have questions answered, feel free to email us through the website at revisionlegal.com you know we're coming up with things that we see but if you've got stuff that you want to hear we're here and we're listening so feel free John's going,
1: and john's going on a food tour in japan so we'll hear from you about that when you get back
0: <laughs> i learned yesterday that a part of our itinerary is the grand sumo tournament so i am so pumped for that <laughs> that's awesome well thanks again everyone uh, thanks for listening this is revision legals may it please the internet podcast and we'll see you next time